0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of Holland by George Edmondson. Chapter Twenty Four, William the First Period, seventeen sixty six to seventeen eighty. Of all the stadholders of his line, William V was the least distinguished. Neither in appearance, character, nor manner was he fitted for the position which he had to fill. He had been most carefully educated, and was not wanting in ability, but he lacked energy and thoroughness, and was vacillating and undecided at moments when resolute action was called for. Like his contemporary Louis the Sixteenth, had he been born in a private station, he would have adorned it, but like that unhappy monarch, he had none of the qualities of a leader of men in critical and difficult times it was the characteristic of him that he asked for confirmation from the provincial estates of the dignities and offices which were his by hereditary right in everything he relied upon the advice of the duke of brunswick whose methods of government he implicitly followed To such an extent was this the case, that soon after his accession to power, a secret act was drawn up, May third, seventeen 1766, known as the Act of Consultation, by which the Duke bound himself to remain at the side of the stadtholder, and to assist him by word and deed in all affairs of state. During the early years, therefore, of William V stadholderate, he consulted Brunswick in every matter, and was thus encouraged to distrust his own judgment, and to be fitful and dulcetory in his attention to affairs of state. One of the first of Brunswick's cares was to provide for the prince a suitable wife. William II, William III, and William IV had all married English princesses, But the feeling of hostility to England was strong in Holland, and it was not thought advisable for the young stadtholder to seek for a wife in his mother's family. The choice of the duke was the Prussian Princess Wilhelmina. The new Princess of Orange was niece on the paternal side of Frederick the Great, and on the maternal side of the Duke of Brunswick himself. The marriage took place at Berlin on October fourth, 1767. The bride was but sixteen years of age, but her attractive manners and vivacious cleverness caused her to win the popular favor on her first entry into her adopted country. The first eight years of William's stadholdership passed by quietly. There is little to record. Commerce prospered, but the Hollanders were no longer content with commerce and aimed, rather, at the rapid accumulation of wealth by successful financial transactions. Stock-dealing had become a national pursuit foreign powers came to Amsterdam for loans, and vast amounts of Dutch capital were invested in British and French funds, and in the various German states. And yet all the time this rich and prosperous country was surrounded by powerful military and naval powers, and having no strong natural frontiers, lay exposed, defenseless to aggressive attack, whether by sea or land. It was in vain that the Stadtholder, year by year, sent pressing memorials to the States-General, urging them to strengthen the Navy and the Army, and to put them on a war footing. The Maritime provinces were eager for an increase of the Navy, but the inland provinces refused to contribute their quota of the charges. Utrecht, Helderland, Overasel, and Groningen, on the other hand, liable as they were to suffer from military invasion, were ready to sanction a considerable addition to the land-forces, but were thwarted by the opposition of Holland, Zeeland, and Friesland. So nothing was done, and the Republic, torn by divided interests and with its ruling classes lapped in self-contented comfort and luxury, was a helpless prey that seemed to invite spoliation." This was the state of things when the British North American colonies rose in revolt against the mother countries. The sympathies of France were from the first with the colonials, and a body of volunteers raised by Lafayette, with the connivance of the French government, crossed the Atlantic to give armed assistance to the rebels. Scarcely less warm was the feeling in the Netherlands. The motives which prompted it were partly sentimental, partly practical. There was a certain similarity between the struggle for independence on the part of the American colonists against a mighty state like Great Britain, and their own struggle with the world power of Spain. There was also the hope that the rebellion would have the practical result of opening out to the Dutch merchants a lucrative trade with the Americas, one of whose chief grievances against the mother country had been the severity of the restrictions forbidding all trading with foreign lands. At the same time the whole air was full of revolutionary ideas, which were unsettling men's minds. This was no less the case in the Netherlands than elsewhere, and the American revolt was regarded as a realization and vindication in practical politics the teachings of Montesquieu, Voltaire, and Rousseau, whose works were widely read, and of the Englishmen Hume, Priestley, and Richard Price. Foremost among the propagandists of these ideas were Jan Dirk van der Kapellen, Tote de Paul, a nobleman of Overaisel, and the three burgomasters of Amsterdam, von Berkel, de Vrij Teminck, and Hoft, all anti-Orage partisans and pro-French in sentiment. Amidst all these contending factions and opinions, the State remained virtually without a head. William V. drifting along, incapable of forming an independent decision, or of making a firm and resolute use of the great powers with which he was entrusted. Torn by internal dissensions, the maintenance of neutrality by the Republic became even more difficult than in the Seven Years' War. The old questions of illicit trade with the enemy and the carrying of contraband arose. The Dutch islands of St. Eustasis and Curaçao became centers of smuggling enterprise, and Dutch merchant vessels were constantly being searched by the British cruisers, and often carried off as prizes into English ports. Strong protests were made, and great irritation aroused. Amsterdam was the chief sufferer. Naturally, in this hotbed of Republican opinion and French sympathies, the prince was blamed and was accused of preferring English interests to those of his own country. The arrival of the Duc de la Vagyon as French ambassador did much to fan the flame. Vagyon entered into close relations with the Amsterdam regents, and did all in his power to exacerbate the growing feeling of hostility to England, and to persuade the Republic to abandon the ancient alliance with that country in favor of one with France. The British ambassador, York, lacked his ingratiating manners and his language now became imperative and menacing in the face of the flourishing contraband trade that was carried on at St. Eustatius. In consequence of his strong protest, the governor of the island, van Heiliger, was replaced by de Graaf, but it was soon discovered that the new governor was no improvement upon his predecessor. He caused additional offense to the British government by saluting the American flag on November 16, 1776. The threats of York grew stronger, but with small result. The Americans continued to draw supplies from the Dutch islands. The entry of France into the war on February sixth, 1778, followed by that of Spain, complicated matters. England was now fighting with her back to the wall, and her sea power had to be exerted to its utmost to make head against so many foes. She waged relentless war on merchant ships carrying contraband, or suspected contraband, whether enemy or neutral. At last money was voted for under pressure from Amsterdam, supported by the Prince for the building of a fleet for protection against privateers, and for purposes of convoy. But a fleet cannot be built in a day, and when Admiral Van Bylant was sent out in 1777, his squadron consisted of five ships only, Meanwhile, negotiations with England were proceeding, and resulted in certain concessions, consent being given to allow what was called limited convoy. The States-General, despite the opposition of Amsterdam, accepted, on November thirteenth, 1778, the proffered Compromise. But the French ambassador, Vaguan, ported the protest of Amsterdam by threatening, unless the States-General insisted upon complete freedom of trade, to withdraw the commercial privileges granted to the Republic by France. Finding that the States-General upheld their resolution of November 13th, he carried his threat into execution. This action brought the majority of the estates of Holland to side with Amsterdam and to call for a repeal of the limited convoy resolution. The English on their part, well aware of all this, continued to do their utmost to stop all supplies reaching their enemies in Dutch bottoms, convoy or no convoy. The British government, though confronted by so many foes, now took strong measures. Admiral von Byland, convoying a fleet of merchantmen through the channel, was compelled by a British squadron to strike his flag, and all the Dutch vessels were taken into Portsmouth. This was followed by a demand under the Treaty of 1678 for Dutch aid in ships and men, or the abrogation of the Treaty of Alliance and of the commercial privileges it carried with it. York gave the States General three weeks for their decision, and on April 17, 1779, the long-standing alliance, which William III had made the keystone of his policy, ceased to exist. War was not declared, but the States General voted for unlimited convoy on April 24, and every effort was made by the admiralties to build up and equip a considerable fleet. The reception given to the American privateer, Paul Jones, who, despite English protests, was not only allowed to remain in Holland for three months, but was feted as a hero, October through December, 1779, accentuated the increasing alienation of the two countries. At this critical stage the difficult position of England was increased by the formation, under the leadership of Russia, of a League of Armed Neutrality. Its object was to maintain the principle of the freedom of the seas for the vessels of neutral countries, unless they were carrying contraband of war, i.e., military or naval munitions. Further, a blockade would not be recognized if not effective. Sweden and Denmark joined the League, and the Empress Catherine invited the United Provinces and several other neutral powers to do likewise her object was to put a curb upon what was described by britain's enemies as the tyranny of the mistress of the seas the republic for some time hesitated conscious of their weakness at sea the majority in the states-general were unwilling to take any overt steps to provoke hostilities when an event occurred which forced their hands in seventeen seventy eight certain secret negotiations had taken place between the amsterdam regents and the american representatives at paris Franklin, and Lee. It chanced that Henry Lawrence, a former President of the Congress, was on his way from New York to Amsterdam in September 1780, for the purpose of raising a loan. Pursued by an English frigate, the ship on which he was sailing was captured off Newfoundland, and among his papers were found copies of the negotiations of 1778, and of the correspondence which then took place." great was the indignation of the british government and it was increased when the estates of holland under the influence of amsterdam succeeded in bringing the states general by a majority of four provinces to three to join the league of armed neutrality better open war than a sham peace instructions were therefore sent to the ambassador york to demand the punishment of the amsterdam regents for their clandestine transactions with the enemies of england the reply was that the matter should be brought before the court of holland and von Weldren, the Dutch ambassador in London, in vain endeavored to give assurances that the States were anxious to maintain a strict neutrality. York demanded immediate satisfaction, and once more called upon the Republic to furnish the aid in men and ships in accordance with the treaty. Further instructions were therefore sent to von Weldren, but they were delayed by tempestuous weather. In any case they would have been of no avail. The British government was in no mood for temporizing. On december twentieth seventeen eighty war was declared against the united provinces and three days later York left the Hague End of chapter twenty four